Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Morning, everyone. So glad you're with us on this Tuesday. Victor Blackwell is with me day before the debate. It's a big day, debate big day. eve. And the, the stage is set. We don't know where they're standing. We know the who's going to be on set. the stage, so that's a start. There you go. There's a lot of news. Let's get started with five things to know for this Tuesday, August 22nd. New overnight, the RNC formally announcing the eight candidates who will appear at tomorrow's GOP primary debate. As expected, the frontrunner, Donald Trump, is not among them. Also new this morning, we've learned that Fox News will no longer let Donald Trump's surrogates access the spin room after the debate. Of course, as we said, Trump is snubbing Fox and the RNC by not participating, instead counter-programming with a taped interview with former Fox host Tucker Carlson. We're also learning that just hours after the debate, Donald Trump will surrender at the Fulton County Jail on charges related to his effort to overturn the 2020 election. Trump has agreed to a $200,000 bond. Also new overnight, Tropical Storm Harold has formed in the Gulf Coast. The storm is forecast to bring heavy rain and flooding to South Texas later today. And Japan announces a controversial decision to release radioactive water from the damaged Fukushima nuclear plant into the ocean Thursday. Neighboring countries, including China, oppose the move. CNN This Morning starts right now. As we said, the stage is set. New overnight, the RNC has released the names of the eight candidates who have made the cut, who will be on the debate stage in Milwaukee tomorrow night. On Sunday, Trump confirmed he would skip the debate. The RNC's chairwoman said she was holding out hope, though he might change his mind. Also developing overnight, Trump says he will surrender at the Fulton County Jail on Thursday, the day after the debate. This will be his fourth arrest this year. Trump has agreed to a $200,000 bond on 13 felony charges for trying to overturn his election loss in Georgia. That includes the RICO racketeering charge, traditionally used to prosecute mobsters. And the judge warns Trump that under the agreement, he is not allowed to threaten or intimidate any of the witnesses or the 18 co-defendants in this place, including on social media. Several of Trump's alleged co-conspirators have also reached bail agreements as they get ready to surrender. Among them is attorney John Eastman, the architect of the legal strategy to keep Trump in power after he lost the election. He's set to turn himself in tomorrow. CNN senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Polance is live outside the Fulton County Courthouse. So the judge here is making it clear that Trump has to watch what he says, also watch what he posts on social media, also those reposts. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. So the bond terms are now public for Donald Trump in this case, and they're notable for a couple reasons. $200,000 bond, that's the promise that Donald Trump makes that he will pay if he doesn't show up for his trial. He's never had a bond like that in any of the other criminal cases that he's been facing and already gone through a process similar to this before. They were just some personal assurities that he would show up. They are having him now say, yes, indeed, if he's not showing up, he would be on the 
hook for $200,000. That is pretty steep for a bond, especially here compared to all of the other defendants that are also negotiating their bonds. And then on top of that, that social media provision, it is quite typical in a case like this where you would tell a defendant, you can't break other laws, you can't intimidate witnesses, you can't talk to other defendants about the facts of the case. Those are all parts of Donald Trump's bond provision. But part of the agreement, too, spells out that he cannot do that intimidation on social media in a situation where we have been watching closely what he's been saying in social media because he has been posting about a very key witness in this case, Mike Pence, who is also running uh, for president right now for the Republican nomination. So that is going to set up a situation really to watch closely about how the court responds to Trump as a criminal defendant as he continues to post on social media. We did just see him post uh, last night that he was going to turn himself into authorities to be arrested here on Thursday. We know John Eastman, another one of the defendants in this case that has negotiated his bond terms. He's going to be turning himself in on Wednesday. So the action is going to continue here for a little bit longer at the courthouses. These bond terms are negotiated among all 19 defendants and then move over to the jail where those arrests take place. And, and what about in the federal probe over a lot of the same issues we're dealing with in Georgia, uh, attempts to subvert the, the election? Jack Smith pushing back the special counsel pretty hard against Trump's team saying, look, we want till 2026 to hold this thing. Bobby, don't forget that Donald Trump has other criminal cases. We should not forget that at all because those other cases are keeping moving forward. And so what happened yesterday in the special counsel's investigation was just a blip on the radar of court filings, but it was a powerful one from special counsel Jack Smith saying to the judge in the federal case related to January 6th, so a different mm -hmm. case than the Georgia case in January 6th, saying that they believe that Donald Trump's team is already exaggerating things to try and get the trial date moved way past the election. The Trump team is asking for April of 2020. Six. That is quite a long time to go to trial. And Smith's team is saying they need to review all kinds of filings. We did turn over, but many of those are filings that are Donald Trump's own records that his team has already looked at. So we're going to get a trial date very likely in that federal case pretty soon, as soon as Monday. Okay. Caitlin, thanks for the reporting. We'll get back to you very soon outside the Fulton County Courthouse for us. Here they are, the eight Republicans who've qualified for the party's first presidential debate in Milwaukee tomorrow. Let's list them off. Doug Burgum, Chris Christie, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Asa Hutchinson, Mike Pence, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Tim Scott. That means that each drew at least 40,000 individual voters, registered at least 1% in three polls, and signed a pledge to back the eventual winner of the GOP primary. CNN Steve Contorno is live in St. Petersburg, Florida. Um, so, obviously, uh, not there on the list, Donald Trump. He says he's not going to be there. So how do we know, or rather, what do we know about how these candidates are preparing for this debate without the clear front runner? Well, if you listen to Governor DeSantis and his campaign, they believe that he will be the focal point of this debate tomorrow night. He is the candidate who Trump has attacked the most uh, going back all the way to last fall. He has been running in second place really since he entered the race. And his campaign believes that this will be a chance for these other candidates to attempt to take a shot at him and try to, to go to get into his support. And his campaign has put a lot of emphasis 
on this debate in conversations I've been having with his people around his campaign. They have said that they have made this. They believe this can be his breakout moment and they have been preparing for it like that. Uh, and he has probably hyped this debate as much, if not more than any other candidate in the race. All of it, though, has put a lot of pressure on DeSantis to appear like the front runner of the Trump alternatives. This is not a, a situation he has ever found himself in before. He's not experienced in these types of settings. If he falls short, if one of these other candidates is able to effectively land an attack on him, if or if they marginalize him or, or ignore him in a way that suggests they no longer see him a threat, that could really change the dynamics of this race going forward, Victor. Fox is uh, pulling the spin room credentials from Trump's surrogates at the debate. Uh, what impact does that have? Well, the spin room is where all the media and reporters go after the debate to get a sense of how people close to the campaign felt that the candidate did. And what the RNC has said, look, if you're not going to be there, Trump, then your surrogates can't have credentials for, for the spin room as well. Some of them will be in there with, with credentials they've received from other media. Uh, but and, and we've also seen other ways that Trump is trying to overshadow tomorrow night's debate. He's going to be doing a sit down interview with Tucker Carlson that will be airing around the same time. And of course, he is going to be turning himself in in Georgia. So just another way he is making his presence felt in Milwaukee, even though he himself will not be here and a surrogate will not be allowed inside the spin room as well. Yeah, we'll certainly hear from the former president, even if those surrogates are not allowed in the room. Steve Contorno for us. Thank you. So this just into CNN, President Biden is naming a new White House counsel. Former Obama attorney Ed Siskel will step into the role. He'll take that job next month. And this comes as President Biden is charging into a reelection campaign while fielding various investigations from his son Hunter Biden's charges to his own handling of classified documents. Jeremy Diamond is at the White House. Familiar name, right? In the Obama administration, he managed everything over Solyndra, uh, Benghazi, so he's got a lot of experience, uh, suits him well, I guess, for what they're headed into here. Yeah, no doubt about it. I'm told by a person familiar with Siskel's selection that it was that experience in defending the Obama White House from those House Republican investigations into uh, loans to uh, that Solyndra uh, energy, solar energy company, as well as the Benghazi uh, investigation, uh, that really uh, helped cement his uh, President Biden's decision to uh, pick Siskel uh, for this role. And that's in part because we've already seen, of course, House Republicans charging uh, against the uh, Biden administration with a number of investigations, but now they're also threatening uh, to uh, launch an impeachment inquiry into uh, President Biden. At the same time, on the judicial side, President Biden is hitting a critical stage of several investigations. He could potentially soon sit uh, with federal investigators in that documents case being led by the special counsel Robert Herr. Uh, his son, Hunter Biden, is now facing a special counsel investigation as well. And so all of this is kind of coming together at the same time. And what in speaking with uh, Siskel's former colleagues, they say that his combination of experience inside the White House counsel's office, four years in the Obama White House, uh, his time as a former federal prosecutor, his time as a Justice Department attorney, all of that makes him prepared to deal with what is really a complex interplay between the White House, the Department of Justice, and of course, Congress as well. And also in terms of trying to figure out where the boundaries are. What you have to keep in mind is that President Biden, he also has a, a 
personal attorney, Bob Bauer, who was actually Siskel's boss for a time at the White House when Bauer was White House counsel. Those two have a really critical relationship because they are going to have to coordinate over uh, legal strategy, uh, stay in communication, but there are also certain lines that have to be drawn. Some areas where the president has to be defended by his personal attorney, Bauer, and other moments where it's the White House counsel, soon to be Ed Siskel, who is going to take the lead. Poppy. Okay, Jeremy Diamond, thanks for the reporting at the White House. New over, sorry. Donald Trump's rivals sounding off on him skipping the first primary debate. What's really interesting is how the voters feel. Do they care? That is new overnight. That is new overnight. A tropical storm Harold has formed in the Gulf of Mexico. The system is expected to bring heavy rain and tropical storm force winds to portions of South Texas later this morning. It's expected to move inland later in the day. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. If he refuses to debate through the entire debate season, I have an issue with that, but I have no issue with him skipping the first couple of debates. The truth is, I, many people in this country didn't even know who I was six months ago, so this is a good opportunity for me to introduce myself to the country. He's been on that debate stage countless times. He's also been U.S. president for four years. That was tech entrepreneur and Republican candidate for president Vivek Ramaswamy reacting to news that former President Trump will not debate Wednesday night. Instead, Ramaswamy and seven other presidential hopefuls will take the stage. CBS and YouGov polling actually shows that 47 percent of Trump voters who are considering others are doing so because they're waiting to see what happens at the debate. Joining us now, politics reporter at Semaphore, Shelby Scott, deputy chief of staff for former Congressman Adam Kinzinger, Maura Gillespie and Bloomberg national politics reporter Christian Hall. Welcome to you all. Maura, I want to uh, start with uh, Shelby. Let me start with you, actually. Um, so that answer from Vivek Ramaswamy, not what he said months ago, but also this is a zero-sum game, right? If you really want to be the nominee, and these debates are not about just overlapping stump speeches, you have to challenge the front runner. And he's, I guess, suggesting that he doesn't need a few opportunities to do that. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And I actually think this is one of the examples of things that Vivek is going to get hit on. There are these kind of contradictory statements that he's made. Uh, but you're right. He Candidates do need the opportunity to go after Trump, and they need to take that opportunity. And a lot of the Republican field that we're going to see on Wednesday night does not want to take that opportunity. It's not even that they don't have the opportunity become, because Trump's not going to be on stage. The moderators of this debate have said that they're going to ask questions about Trump. It's that the candidates don't want to directly go after him. And they're all thinking about what do the voters want? What do they want to hear? Maura, you uh, worked with two men who are not exactly in line with where the Republican Party is now, Adam Kinzinger and John Boehner. Listen to what this New York Times uh, focus group of Republican voters in the first four states in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada said. They said, Mr. Trump, this is what they found, has never come across so well positioned as compared with his rivals as he did in this one. And there's little appetite among these voters for attacks on him. This is after four indictments. This is after everything. And he's never come across as well as now to these voters. What does I it find, tell you? I find that so hard to believe, truly. Believe I it. I can't. Um, but no, I, I find it really hard to believe as far as on a wider scale, the Republican Party will continue to lose if Donald Trump is our candidate. And I think Chris Nunu uh, wrote about it in his op-ed this weekend, yeah. talking about the down ballot 
impact this will have on your local school board. I mean, it really will have down ballot uh, implications. And I think for the GOP, you know, one of the attack lines that I think candidates should be using is looking at this as Donald Trump is attacking the Republican Party. He has continually tried to do so. He is not going to sign the RNC pledge. He will not attend debates, which the debates are for the voters. He's more or less saying that he already is the candidate. These things are going to reinforce that for him. And he's saying that he doesn't need to earn it from the voters. Isn't that exactly what the MAGA whole playbook is about, is to drain the swamp of entitled leaders who think that they're not beholden to we the people? To me, this very much says Donald Trump doesn't need the voters. He is Donald Trump and he'll be president. That's how he views himself. That's a problem. Now, Christian, um, the RNC, and this is what they have because he has not signed the pledge. He's not debating. They have uh, pulled the credentials from the Trump surrogates for the spin room. This feels like such inside baseball. I mean, but this is what they have. How much does it matter at home? I mean, if you're looking for what Donald Trump thinks, he'll tell you. You don't need Byron Donalds to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question. It doesn't really come as much of a surprise to me, though, honestly. I mean, Donald Trump has had a love-hate relationship with like Fox News. And um, so that doesn't come as much of a surprise to me. Um, I think part of it is because, you know, Trump snub, not only snub, but Trump also decided just to go to a former employee of Fox News to host an interview. Right. Um, So a fired employee, a fired employee. Exactly. Um, So I I think that this isn't really that much of a shock, but we know Donald Trump, he's going to find a way to speak to his base, speak to his voters. So I don't know how much this will really impact that. And the the really interesting thing also is this is going to be such a short news cycle for his opponents, Mm -hmm. in part because you have Trump counter-programming, but also because he's going to surrender on Thursday. And so immediately, if he doesn't get all of the attention Wednesday night... He's going to get all the news coverage on Thursday, and so a decision by him. The the news cycle for this presidential debate is extremely small for these for his opponents to really make a mark and stand out. It's really, and we had Chris Christie on last week and talked a little bit about sort of his debate strategy. And you know, he came in as a bulldozer to go after Trump. The question is, Trump's not there, so who does he go after? Is there another Marco Rubio moment? Who is that? Is that is that DeSantis? Who who does he go after? What, what are you looking for in terms of who has the most to gain on this stage, Christian, and who has the most to lose? Yeah, I think a lot of the lower polling candidates have a lot to gain. Um, well, that's Christie. He's at like 2%. Exactly. I mean, I think a lot of these candidates are saying, look, Trump isn't here. So that probably gives me a little bit more breathing room to, you know, make an appeal to the Trump base, right? Um, but I think a lot of these candidates are looking for some type of breakout moment. That's what they really need. I think after we saw the polls yesterday, the Iowa mm-hmm. poll, that was it just so shows. Stunning. Yeah, I mean, it just really shows that Trump has a real hold on the GOP right now. So these candidates are looking for some way to kind of break through. And we know that debates are very important in doing that. And I honestly say that a lot of what has happened up until this moment don't really matter that much. These candidates don't have an opportunity to speak to as large of you know, an audience as a debate. Yeah, same question, Laura. What are you looking for? Chris Christie did really make a standout performance. And I think, you know, I'll be interested to see how DeSantis and Ramachami interact and how they handle questions and how they handle questions about Donald Trump. As you mentioned, it's going to be a real problem uh, as far as, you know, addressing Trump 
and hitting on Trump because staying in his lane and standing by him and as, you know, defending him is not the tactic to use and isn't going to get you anything but second or third. But even in the context of what we've learned from the uh, focus group from the New York Times is they don't want to hear that. And I mean, that is what Chris Christie brings to this uh, conversation. You still think that that's his key? I do, because I think there's a lot of people in the Republican Party and independent voters who are dissatisfied with Trump and Biden at the top of the tickets and are looking for something else. They're looking and they're going to be listening and pay attention to these debates to see if there's somebody they can get to 80 percent of the way there. You're never going to find a candidate that you agree with 100 percent of the, of the time on. That's just impossible. But find someone who you can get there with that isn't Trump or Biden. And, you'll, you know, that's what people are looking for. Voices who won't be on the stage, Larry. Elder, uh, former congressman from Texas, Republican, Will Hurd, who wants this Republican Party to be something it's not mm-hmm. right now. And uh, former Miami mayor, Francis Suarez. Sununu, others have been saying, Romney, you know, if you don't have a path, you got to drop out. Is this a moment you think they do or do they push it a few more months? I do expect we'll see it dwindle, maybe not immediately, but at some point. Among those three? Among those three. Um, but I also think this is this is the thing that uh, people who don't want Trump have been saying before any of this started, before anyone got in, was the concern that the more people who are running, the more it is likely that Trump will win the primary because he has that core support and he still is the leader of the Republican Party at this point. And so if you have, you know, 12 other people who are all vying for the same percentage, right, do the math. It, it, this has been the problem essentially since before anybody got in the race, including Trump. All right. Shelby, Maura, Christian, thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. So our CNN crew is getting firsthand look at newly liberated at a newly liberated Ukrainian village. You'll hear what firemen inside the village told our team. And we're following this. It's happening right now. An urgent rescue mission to save a group of students who were trapped on that chairlift in Pakistan. One of the cables snapped while six children and two adults were traveling to school. We've learned that the kids are between 10 and 15 years old, and there is a report that two of the students are slipping in and out of consciousness. The chairlift is reportedly hanging at about 900 feet in this mountainous region. Look at that wide shot. We'll bring you updates as we get them. This morning, Ukraine says that Russia has struck the Zaporizhia region 96 times with shells and missiles in the past 24 hours. One man is dead, another hospitalized. Nearby homes are damaged by those attacks. Meanwhile, in Orkiv, Russia's bombardment has been relentless. Now one fireman is sharing the personal tragedies he's endured living on the front lines, the Ukrainian counteroffensive there. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is live in Zaporizhia. So uh, what did you learn uh, about what's happening in Orkiv from this fireman? Yeah, look, it's extraordinary just standing here, frankly. We've been hearing what sounds like distant blasts overnight in the pitch black. I could hear a drone pass overhead. Bombardment in Zaporizhia, you were saying, is relentless and nowhere worst hit than Orakhiv, the town really at the back end of Ukraine's current thrust south in the counter-offensive. Dima, the farmer, we've gotten to know over a period of time, has talked about how damaged that city is, but his story is really most agonising when you talk to him about what happens away from the front line, away from the glare of what people are looking at, what really happens in quiet, empty and broken homes across Ukraine. 
The aftermath is not always easier. These are the firemen of the most bombed city on earth, Orakiv, in the throes of the counter-offensive. And this is a normal day for them. Here's the story of one we've gotten to know, Dima. Таке впечатление, що ми вже ми просто родилися і всю жизнь жили в війні. За два часа щось в 200 прилетіло снарядів. Ми з колегами, коли в підвалі були, ми з життям прощалися. Вигоріло по балконам, пішло. Прилетів кап. Pain here doesn't just come from the flames away from the front lines. Ukraine is suffering in ways we don't see. Dima has lost nearly all his family since the war began. His wife left for Europe as a refugee just days after the war started with his son, and he doesn't know if they will ever come back. The emptiness of their family home is a crippling, constant weight on him. Я тут, ну, скажем так, я тут ночами не сплю, може я за сутки час може й поспати. А на роботи приїжджаєш, тебе ну, все одно дом є дом. Я там хоч трошки висипаюся, хоч навіть стріляю. The gaps between the horror harder than the horror itself. And sleep when it comes is sometimes worse. Останній час дуже погано сплю і практично не сплю, но коли засипаю, сниться сім'я, яка дуже далеко від мене. Що я приїжджаю після смін, заходжу виходжу з ліфта і стоїть моя сім'я. Чекає мене, що я приїду. Ну, приїхав, що вона повернулася, що ми ось уже з тобою. Я радий цьому бачити, що після великого часу я їх наконець-то встрітив. Почти рік не бачив сім'ю. Больна тема це. Орокіїв has been ground to dust in the last two months. But Dima's grief here came immediately with last year's invasion. His father died in its first days, just before his wife left, from a heart attack. He says because of shelling. In that chaos, Dima had to bury his father himself. Ну в нього серце стало просто його диспуга, може, і щось в цьому роді. І щось стрельнуло таке десь там рядом, і воно ж як стріляє, воно ж всередині все тіліпається. І у матері на руках помер батько. Now he only has his mother left. She won't leave the house where his father died and where Dima was born and where the flames may strike again. Nearly every Ukrainian home has holes in it from people who won't come back and emotions forged in a war with no end in sight. Я хочу, щоб вони в такому місці, вони такі, щоб вони всі жили в 
після такого, що вони зробили з моїм містом. Щоб вони в таких условіях жили до кінця своєї житті, щоб їх як не було взагалі, як нації. Я не спорю, в сім'ї може не без урода, везде є нормальні люди, адекватні, з будь-якої сторони. Я їх буду, скільки я буду жити, я їх буду ненавидити до кінця життя. Я думаю, багато часу ми дивимося на цю війну з призмою фронтлайн вікторів, армії, спілкування, але рухання всього цього – це відповідальність віддалі трагедії в багатьох будинках. Орокіїв сам, ми були там у мені, це було частково стандартно, і в питання двох місяців багато вирішили, і це просто літерально з кратерами зараз. Багато вирішили, також, як ви бачите, в сім'ях будинках. Віктор? Нік, дякую дуже, що привезли нас цю історію, щоб розповідати нам персональні кошти, що це означає на індивідуальному рівні цю війну. Нік Пейтон-Валш. Thanks. Extraordinary. All right, Republican lawmakers in Georgia now eyeing ways to try to punish the DA there, Fonnie Willis, for prosecuting Trump. What we're learning about their plans next. In San Francisco, a car with no one in the driver's seat collides with the fire truck that was responding to an emergency. What city officials plan to do to reel in driverless cars? Doesn't know what to do. He's about to go drive into this trench right here. Welcome back. Donald Trump said to turn himself in to Fulton County Jail Thursday. He wrote in a post online, I'll be going to Atlanta, Georgia on Thursday to be arrested by a radical left district attorney, Fonnie Willis. Trump and his 18 co-defendants have until Friday to turn themselves in on charges relating to efforts to overturn the election. With us now, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Patricia Murphy. He keeps doing that. He keeps going after Fonnie Willis, Jack Smith, Judge Chuckin. That He may not be able to do that much more now after what the judge handed down yesterday um, in terms of constraints. But just talk to us about how Atlanta, Fulton County is preparing for Thursday. Are we going to see Trump? Do we know? Will he speak? What can you tell us? So uh, media, national media, even international media are keeping at this point a 24-hour watch on the Fulton County Jail. These defendants can turn themselves at any time 24-7, but we certainly expect Donald Trump not to come in in the middle of the night. We expect him to come in and try and even maximize his media exposure. Um, there are also, of course, 18 other defendants who will be trickling in over the next several days. But for Donald Trump, he will be booked, the sheriff tells us, just like everybody else in Fulton County at the Fulton County Jail. That includes typically a mugshot, a pat down and fingerprints. So that's what the sheriff has told us to expect. He also said things can change quickly because this is a fluid situation. Mm -hmm. But we expect Donald Trump to be in that jail just like everybody else. Patricia, uh, led by, I guess, attacks like the one that Poppy just read from the former president, there are Republican lawmakers in Georgia who are trying to find ways to punish Fonnie Willis for the prosecution of Donald Trump. Uh, one of the ways is through this uh, prosecutorial oversight committee uh, in the state legislature. Explain what that is, how the options they have if they decide to pursue it. So that commission has not yet been seated yet. It was created with a law that passed the legislature earlier this year that was passed by Republicans. At the time, they said it was for district attorneys who they felt like were not prosecuting the right crimes, violent crimes, people who were pleading out mm -hmm. to cases that should have been prosecuted. Um, Fannie Willis's name was very um, carefully 
left out of that debate. But even at the time, the Democratic DAs in the state said this is clearly an effort to come in and start to investigate Fannie Willis and start to pressure her and chill her investigation if this commission goes forward. It was passed by the legislature. Those members will be seated by the heads of the Republican legislature. So they'll be picked by the heads of the legislature. They'll be Republicans, um, but not until October. Um, however, already state lawmakers are saying they want that commission to investigate Fannie Willis. She has she has currently gotten an indictment against a sitting state senator. She also has been investigating the lieutenant governor, who's the president of the state Senate. So there's lots of tentacles in all of the politics going into this. Well, one of the interesting things is that law was approved by Governor Brian Kemp, who has been repeatedly uh, repeating that the election was not stolen and that Biden legitimately won the state of Georgia. Could this hamstring her? Because the reason they passed it to go after more violent criminals, et cetera, that is something Fannie Willis has been explicitly focused on, which is interesting. Do you really think that this could, once they're seated, could hamstring her in the Trump probe? I think it's a long shot, honestly. Fannie Willis came in as an ADA in that prosecutor's office doing nothing but murder prosecutions. Right. She's known in Atlanta as a very aggressive prosecutor. So any commission um, that would be seated to take up a, a complaint from a state senator, it's not clear exactly what they should be investigating um, because she's brought these charges. She's brought these indictments. They'll be moving through the process. They've been overseen by multiple judges of various political backgrounds. So it's to me, it seems like a long shot. It's an effort to take something back to their constituents, say, look, we're trying to do something about Fonnie Willis, but I don't think there's much they can do about this particular prosecution right now. So you've got uh, on this question of the election, you've got on one side the governor uh, Governor Kemp, who is not so much condemning the charges, but defending the election, yeah. saying everything was safe here. It was not stolen. On the other side, you have Marjorie Taylor Greene, who uh, tweets out indictments against President Trump are a conspiracy by the communist Democrats and on and on and on. Um, who's speaking for the majority uh, of Georgia Republicans? Who's winning that fight in the state? Well, first of all, welcome to the Georgia Republican Party. This is the buffet of opinions that you're going to see. Um, but you've got to think that Brian Kemp is speaking for the majority of Georgia Republicans. He just won statewide um, by a 50-point margin over his own Republican primary rival, who was um, himself a former popular senator. So Brian Kemp is the most Republican, is the most popular Republican here in the state. He just came off a huge statewide victory. Marjorie Taylor Greene is an, an extremely conservative district, and she's seen as just representing really the base of the base at this point. So you, so we certainly think that Kemp is speaking for most Republicans, but not all Republicans. And that's why Donald Trump still has a majority support, even among Republicans here in the state. Yeah. Patricia Murphy, thank you for the insight that only a great boots on the ground local reporter like you can bring. We appreciate it. Thank you. A new study out this morning paints a troubling picture for patients suffering from long COVID symptoms. We're also following breaking news out of Los Angeles this morning, where more than 30 patients in critical condition at a Los Angeles hospital have been evacuated after a power outage. More on that ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. A new study in the journal Nature Medicine paints a sobering picture of the effects of long COVID on patients who contracted COVID-19 
early in the pandemic. We're talking before vaccines. CNN medical correspondent Meg Terrell is here. So what did the study find? Yes, this was a huge study looking at a VA database. And what they did was they looked at about 130,000 people who had COVID in that first year of the pandemic before the vaccines were available. And they compared that with about 6 million people who didn't have COVID. And what they found is that a lot of these effects, they looked at 80 different symptoms of long COVID, could last for up to two years. Neurologic symptoms, cardiovascular symptoms, really almost all organs of the body affected by long COVID. And they found a lot of these effects were more pronounced in people who had been hospitalized for their disease, but they were even persistent up to two years for some people who had had mild disease and were not hospitalized. The study also looked at sort of the burden of the disease from a societal level, something called disability-adjusted life years or healthy years lost. Uh, to long COVID. And they found that metric uh, was 80 healthy years lost for long COVID per 1,000 people, which is a higher figure than for cancer or for heart disease, wow. which is really kind of staggering when you yes. think about it. So from a societal level and even from a workforce level, it's really something to think about. And what about, I think this is a separate study, correct me if I'm wrong, on the impact on blood pressure. Yeah, both of these came out yesterday, but it is a separate study, which actually looked at the risk of developing high blood pressure six months after COVID infection and compared it with your risk after a flu infection. And they found that COVID has a much higher risk of developing high blood pressure six months later. For people who are hospitalized with COVID, the risk was more than double than that of flu. But even for people who weren't, the risk was 1.5 times higher. Overall, 21% of people hospitalized with COVID developed high blood pressure at six months, and 11% of people who had had mild disease, which is much more common, developed high blood pressure. So doctors are saying this is really something that's important to think about from a screening perspective, mm -hmm. knowing people had COVID, think yeah. about taking their blood pressure. Do they know why and who's most likely to be affected here? They did find that older people, males, people who had some underlying health conditions um, like COPD, chronic kidney disease were more at risk. They don't know why. They have some ideas, but the idea that we saw with long COVID, how many different systems of the body can be affected some of those effects dysregulate blood pressure. And this is something to be aware of. So many people obviously got infected with this virus. Wow. Yeah. All right. Wow. Good to know. Meg Terrell, thank you so much. Appreciate it. So this morning, there was a power outage forcing 30 patients in critical condition to be transferred out of a hospital in Los Angeles. This is happening right now. The blackout occurred in the building housing, the specialty care center. It was not known if it was caused by Tropical Storm Hillary. Obviously, they've had a lot of bad weather there. Officials say more than 200 patients were impacted. Those not deemed critical will be moved to another building on campus. There are firefighters giving a briefing right now on all of this. We'll update you as we have more. This morning, New York officials are investigating a company that they hired to help deal with the surge of migrants. Why migrants say that company deceived them. Plus. That was a very hard landing in California. Sparks flying. We'll tell you more about the moment ahead. Governor New York announcing 20 million more dollars are going to go to the state's migrant crisis. Governor Kathy Hochul says the money is set up to help speed up the process that allows migrants legally to work in the city of New York and New York State more broadly. In a statement yesterday, she wrote that getting asylum seekers on track to work authorization will help them become self-sufficient and come out of the shadows. Now, officials estimate about 100,000 migrants have flocked to New York City since just the spring of last year. Athena Jones is here with more this is so interesting. 
you know, living here and seeing what has been happening and also hearing from business owners, big names who have been saying we have to uh, make work visas more quickly for them. We have to make it possible to integrate these migrants into our society and help everyone. Sure. And this is something that you've heard from certainly Mayor Adams and from the governor, this this push for work, work authorization. But we know that the New York Attorney General's office is investigating this company, DocGo. It's a healthcare provider. It's a for-profit healthcare provider that has two multi-million dollar contracts with the city of New York. We're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars here to help uh, transport and feed and otherwise serve some of these about 100,000 right. asylum seekers. Now, the CEO of that company, Doc, uh, DocGo CEO, Anthony Capone, says that they received a letter from the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, asking for materials pertaining to some of the services they've been providing the city. Now, the Attorney General's office so far will not, they'll only confirm there is an investigation. They're not providing more details. But the New York Times says that the allegations are going to look into, the investigation will look into multiple allegations, including that staff at DocGo-run sites were enrolling uh, migrants in health care plans they were not eligible for, uh, that DocGo staff threatened migrants, that they offered uh, incorrect information about job opportunities, and that they may have even possibly jeopardized their ability uh, to get asylum. So now this CEO says they're going to be totally cooperative, they're going to be transparent, they're going to answer these requests from the AG's office expeditiously. But they say, certainly in response to this idea of enrolling migrants in health care plans, they're not eligible for. This is what Capone said. He said, what we do is bring on multiple different plans from around the state. And those health plans have people that enroll individuals and they make the determination on eligibility relative to the background of the individual. DOCO does not make any of that determination. Can you explain why some of these things that they're alleged to have done would impact the ability for a migrant to successfully get an asylum grant? Well, certainly they're not supposed to be working, and, and that is one right. strike against you if you're found to be working in an, unauthorized. That could hurt their application. But the other question is, that you know, were these, what were these migrants told to be transported to various places, maybe far from the city? Were they told that there may be a job for them there? That is what the AG's office is going to be looking into. Okay, thank you for That's keeping us posted. CNN This Morning continues now. The 45th president of the United States now plans to turn himself in at the Fulton County Jail this Thursday. Even though this is his fourth indictment, this is the first time that he has had to post cash bond. We are in unprecedented territory. We're going to find out where the line is. Eight candidates are fully qualified now to participate in this debate. I don't think our voters look kindly on somebody that thinks they don't have to earn it. I have no issue with him skipping the first couple of debates. Trump, he could sit back and watch people attack Ron DeSantis and watch Ramaswamy defend him. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden are on Maui viewing firsthand the devastation and pain that has been left there by the wildfires. The country grieves with you, stands with you. We're with you for as long as it takes. There's no public list of the missing. Plenty of folks are coming to grips with the idea that their loved ones are now part of the landscape here. Millions across the Southwest are recovering after tropical storm Hillary brought life-threatening floods, damaging winds, power outages, and evacuations to the region. This is actually a road. This scene is being repeated across Southern California. I couldn't describe it. i never seen like that. The amount of water we got, it's huge. Heading to shopping mall. 
please make sure your seatbelt is fastened. Incidents involving autonomous vehicles have spiked. Don't be stupid. It's not ready for prime time. The status quo of transportation is really unacceptable. Pay attention, get on board, get ahead of this, because it's coming your way. Good morning, everyone. We're so glad you're with us. It's the top of the hour. Victor Blackwell by my side. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you. Pre-debate. Day two, two pre-debate day. Getting your popcorn ready? I was going to ask you about snacks. <laughs> we talk about snacks in the commercials We talk here. about snacks in the breaks. You guys are ready? <laughs> yeah, we're All ready. Right, um, this new overnight, the official lineup for the first Republican presidential debate is out. There you have it. Republican frontrunner Donald Trump is not in it. The RNC releasing the names of the eight candidates who will appear on the stage in Milwaukee tomorrow night. Trump has already said he was going to skip the debate. The RNC chairwoman was holding out hope, though, he might change his mind. Also, this developing overnight, former President Trump says he will surrender at the Fulton County Jail in Atlanta on Thursday. Today, after the debate, this will be his fourth arrest this year. His bond has been set at $200,000 on those 13 felony charges for trying to overturn his election loss in Georgia. The judge is already warning Trump that when he's released, he is not allowed to threaten or intimidate any of the witnesses or 18 co-defendants in the case, including on social media. Uh, several of Trump's alleged co-conspirators have also reached bail agreements as they get ready to surrender. Among them, attorney John Eastman. He's the architect of the legal strategy to keep Trump in power after he lost the election, he's set to turn himself in tomorrow. CNN senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Polance is live outside the Fulton County, Fulton County Courthouse. Uh, the judge laying out conditions already for Trump's release. Victor, the strictest conditions that Donald Trump has faced yet as a criminal defendant in four different cases, four different courts. Here in Georgia, those conditions have two things that make this uh, much stricter for the former president as he awaits trial, not in jail. So these are the conditions that allow him to be released awaiting his trial rather than staying in jail. The top one to be watching is that not only is he told he can't intimidate any witnesses or defendants or speak to any other co-defendants or potential witnesses in this case about the facts of jail. January 6th, which is the allegations for this case. He also explicitly is not allowed to be doing that on social media. He can't be posting in a way that could be perceived as intimidating witnesses. No other court has said it that directly, even though a similar term is on top of him for uh, his situation in the federal court in Washington, D.C., as well as New York. So there's going to be a lot of attention paid to what Donald Trump might be posting on social media, saying publicly, including related to some of his rivals uh, in the political sphere, people like Mike Pence, who's running against him. He would be very much potentially a crucial witness in this case or a possible witness here in Georgia. Separately, he has a $200,000 bond term. No cash bond was set, no money amount in any of the other cases. And so here in Georgia, that $200,000, that's the promise that Donald Trump makes to pay to the court if he were not to show up for his case, for his proceedings. Other defendants have reached agreements already as well. In this 19 defendant case, two attorneys, John Eastman and Ken Chesbro, they both made their bond agreements as well. The reason that everyone does that first is so that when they go and be arrested at the jail, that that process can be uh, fairly efficient so that they don't have to spend a long time in jail until they can be bonded out. And so this sets up the possibility for Donald Trump to turn himself in on Thursday, Eastman to turn himself in on Wednesday, 
for their arrests. We're waiting to see what else happens today as far as bond negotiations. Okay. Kaylin, thanks so much for the reporting there in Atlanta. Victor. All right, let's pick it up there. What happens next? Let's bring in now CNN senior legal analyst and former assistant uh, U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Ellie Honig. All right, so as Caitlin mentioned, some of the 19, they now have these agreements in place. What does that mean? Walk us through it. So five of the 19 now have agreements in place. And these are agreements, to be clear, between the DA and the individual defendants that have now been signed off by the judge. There's two components to each of these release agreements. The first of it is a cash bond. Donald Trump has agreed to a $200,000 cash bond. He doesn't have to go write a check for $200,000. That's just in case he doesn't show. John Eastman has an agreement for $100,000. Kenneth Chesbro, another attorney, $100,000. Ray Smith, $50,000. Scott Hall, $10,000. Expect to hear about more of these agreements being reached throughout the day. Now, the second part of these bail release agreements, which are, I think, more complicated here, restrictions on communications. The judge has entered an order, Donald Trump has agreed to it, that he cannot threaten or intimidate any co-defendants, any witnesses, or any victims. And interestingly for Donald Trump, it specifies use of social media, including not just posting, but reposting. And Donald Trump's been on a bit of a bender the yes. last three weeks or yes. so, starting with this sort of infamous Truth Social and many that follow that we won't sort of recirculate here that are much more specific and direct. And so there's a question about how are prosecutors going to police this? I think they're going to be looking for posts that are directed at a specific individual mm. and that are specifically tied to this case. But keep in mind, Donald Trump does have First Amendment rights. He's allowed to talk about the case and he's in the middle of a campaign. So we'll see how that gets policed. And this has been what he's focused on primarily in these rallies that he's holding for yeah, the campaign. For sure. So what happens this week? There is a deadline coming. When do we expect these people to surrender? Yeah, all 19 defendants have been given until Friday at noon. That clock is ticking. By the way, if anyone does not surrender by then, that enables the DA to send out cops, law enforcement to go make an arrest. I think everyone will comply with this. Important difference here from what we've seen before. In the past, the surrenders have happened in the courthouses. This surrender that we'll start seeing tomorrow and into the future will happen at the Fulton County Jail. Now, they're not going to be locked up. They're not going to be in cells or general population, but they are going to have to go through the processing at the jail. That will involve a search, a typical, typically a medical screening, fingerprints, and then the mugshot. We're going to put a question mark there because we don't know for sure. The sheriff has said, yes, we will take a mugshot of Donald Trump unless we are told otherwise. Georgia law actually requires mugshots for all felonies. If there is a mugshot of Donald Trump, very likely we will see it publicly fairly quickly, given Georgia law. The other thing that's really important, in the prior cases, the same day mm -hmm. as the processing, there's been a court appearance. Here, there's not going to be a court appearance until sometime down the line, which will be set by the judge in this case. Okay, so what happens there? And then tell us more about this judge. This judge, Scott McAfee, he graduated law school in 2013. That's not a typo, 2013. If you're doing the math, Victor, he's 34 years old, which makes him... Much younger than me. I don't and know about me, you. And okay. Me, yes. Uh, makes me feel kind of old. Uh, he was a federal prosecutor. He was actually a state prosecutor under the DA, Fonnie Willis, for a short amount of time. He was made a judge earlier this year in 2023 by the Republican governor of Georgia, Governor Kemp. The reviews on him have been uniformly solid. He knows what he's doing. That's what we've been told so far. But imagine being in your first year on the bench. You get your cases randomly wheeled out. This was randomly assigned. And this one lands in your lap. Oh, it is a huge one, and he will get a lot of attention. Scott McAfee, the judge there. Ellie Honick, thanks so much. Thanks, Victor. Poppy? All right, this morning we know who will be facing off in the first Republican presidential debate in Milwaukee tomorrow night. Eight candidates will take the stage, not the clear frontrunner, President Trump. He has 
opted out. He's taped an interview instead with Tucker Carlson. That will air during the debate. Jeff Zeleny live in Milwaukee with more. So hopefully they prepare Jeff without Trump. They're going to talk about him a lot, I'm sure. What do we know about how they're all preparing for tomorrow night? And Poppy, good morning. Well, the stage is set now for those eight candidates. And you're right, these uh, all the hopefuls, I'm told, have been preparing for uh, the possibility of Trump coming to the debate or the possibility of him not. Now that we know he's not coming, though, uh, he's still going to be a central figure, of course, in this debate. But first, let's take a look at which eight candidates will be on the debate stage. Of course, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is the uh, second candidate in most national and state polls. He, of course, qualified a long time ago as did Senator uh, Tim Scott from South Carolina. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley will also be on stage, as will entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy. The other candidates on stage will be former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, former Vice President Mike Pence, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, as well as uh, a former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson there. He was the last candidate to qualify. I actually saw him flying here yesterday. Uh, he said he is excited to participate in this debate. So, yes, this is going to be essentially ringing the opening bell of the Republican uh, primary campaign in this summer. But, of course, the big person not on stage is Donald Trump. The Fox News hosts have said they do plan to uh, make him a central part of this debate. But the other candidates are looking for a way to break out in their own way. Of course, Chris Christie, Asa Hutchinson and Mike Pence have been talking extensively in critical ways of the former president. The other candidates largely have not been. They'll be looking for a viral moment, if possible, to introduce themselves. And this is the biggest stage that many of them uh, have ever had and will likely ever have in this primary campaign to make their case to Republican voters here. So uh, there are many debates scheduled this fall, virtually one a month. But this is a critical one for these uh, these lower tier candidates in particular, sure. and for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He has been practicing with uh, one of the biggest debate coaches in Republican politics, Brett McDonald, mm -hmm. and this is a chance for him to either show that he is the second-tier candidate or perhaps uh, have someone else replace him in that. So a huge night for these Republican candidates tomorrow here in Milwaukee. And it's, and, it, and it's happening in a critical state, battleground state of Wisconsin. So I wonder what your reporting is on Democrats as they watch this closely. I mean, and that is exactly why this is here. Of course, Republicans will hold their convention here in Milwaukee next summer. And this is one of the closest states in the country. Of course, Trump won in 2016. He lost in 2020. But Democrats are already advertising here. President Biden's campaign is. Many Democrats will be descending on Milwaukee to paint this entire uh, field of candidates as extreme in their words. So this marks the first time that the White House and the president's campaign will be sort of injecting themselves, asserting themselves into this Republican campaign. So you can be sure what happens on stage tomorrow night will certainly play a major role in the general election campaign next summer. Poppy. Jeff, Zeleny for us in Milwaukee. Thank you. Some of Donald Trump's rivals, some of them are slamming him for skipping tomorrow's debate. But what do Republican voters think? We'll break down the latest polling and new insight from a New York Times focus group. Also new this morning, new reporting also from The New Yorker reveals just how much the U.S. government relies on Elon Musk's companies. It is fascinating. Journalist Ronan Farrow joins us on set to talk about all of it. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. 
And we now know that Donald Trump's probably not going to show up at the first two debates. If he shows up at the third one, which I suspect he might, because he's going to get pretty damaged in these first two by not being there, in my opinion, you're going to want me to be there to continue to bring it. Presidential candidate Chris Christie reacting to the news that former President Trump will not participate in tomorrow night's Republican debate. Instead, Trump will be preparing to turn himself in to the Fulton County Jail the following day. Joining us now, politics reporter at Semaphore, Shelby Talcott, and CNN political analyst and national politics reporter for The New York Times, Ested Herndon. Welcome to you both. I want to get, before I get to a question, one more of the candidates in on the former president's decision not to debate. Here is Governor Ron DeSantis. I think he owes it to people. Uh, I don't think our voters, even people that appreciate what he did, and I'm actually one that appreciated a lot of what he did, too. Uh, I don't think they're going to look kindly on somebody that thinks they don't have to earn it. But instead, there is this really revealing focus group from your paper, The New York Times, where they find one of the findings from this discussion was that assuming Mr. Trump skips the debate as planned, he might not really pay a price. Many of the respondents felt his strong performance entitled him to a first round by that, okay, so he's not there. We still know it. Absolutely. I just came from Iowa where you heard the sentiment over and over and over. You have for the kind of Republican base that built-in support, that built-in trust of Donald Trump, and the feeling among some that he should be, frankly, treated as an incumbent, as the kind of heir to the nomination. And, and that is, I think, a, a, a large slice of the Republican electorate. But we consistently see in polling kind of 50 percent of, of folks who are looking for an alternative, the type of people who might have liked what Donald Trump did but think that he has some baggage that might make him a, a less electable candidate. That's who those kind of alternatives are trying to appeal to in this next debate. The problem for them is that that's not the majority of the Republican voters. There's still that huge group of people, as the focus group points to, as our reporting points to, that really kind of back him on this decision. Now, I think to Governor Christie's point, we don't know if that's going to last, right? Yeah. If the, he takes some damage in this next debate, if he's someone who looks kind of uh, increasingly weakened, maybe from the trials, I can see Donald Trump coming back to use these platforms. We know he's not someone who shirks from any spotlight. But as of right now, because voters are going to pay an elect, because voters aren't imposing an electoral penalty mm -hmm. on him for skipping it, I, I think that is really giving him the backing to be able to say, okay, maybe not this first debate, maybe not the second debate, I might come to the third one. Yeah. I'm super interested in what uh, Vivek Ramaswamy is going to do on the stage because at your reporting in Semaphore is that he hasn't done any mock debates, certainly played a lot of tennis. <laughs> Played some tennis with you. Yes. By the way, we learned this morning that Shelby was a pro tennis player. Yeah. The before becoming a pro pro reporter. Washed up. Um, <laughs> no, not at all. But it's interesting. Here's what he tweeted trying to distinguish himself. There he is playing. He said testosterone primary rolls along in a social media video, and then he says three hours of solid debate prep this morning. That's what his tweet is. What's he gonna do? Yeah, well, I will first, the, the tennis aspect of it, I said said to some colleagues, if this debate was a tennis tournament, I do think he would win. Who won? As someone, we didn't play. I like to, I'm, you know, I like to think I could, I could take him. Oh, In my personal opinion, yeah. I'm not like, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> he, he, is, he is good though, but uh, it's interesting because Vivek is, the, is one of the candidates who does not want to go after Trump as we're talking about some of these candidates who do want to go after Trump. And that's partially because he wants to bill himself as kind of MAGA 2.0. His whole pitch in this presidential run is, I'm going to do what Donald Trump did, but take it further, and I'm going to be able to do more 
than what he was able to do in his four years. And talk about more about foreign policy. Yes, yes. And he that's one of the things that he has been prepping for for the debate stage because that's one of his um, that's one of the things he's less experienced on is is foreign policy. And it's also one of the things where he has a very different point of view on some of these issues compared to the majority of the Republicans on stage. And we're already seeing, uh, you know, Nikki Haley has taken some hits at him in the past day or two. Really, candidates are starting to take a look at Vivek, and I do expect him to have to defend some of his foreign policy positions on stage on Wednesday night. Well, they have to look at him because he is in, what, in some of these polls, third place ahead of a former ambassador, governor, as a sitting senator. Um, Ested, let me come to you on the Trump plan here. Uh, This video that's coming out, we've been talking about it for days. Mm -hmm. He has telegraphed this punch. How much does it really mean if on Monday, Tuesday, we know it's coming Does it steal the spotlight? I mean, what's the value here in the conversation of the debate? I mean, I I think that there is a risk of that because so much of the DeSantis strategy has been kind of telegraphed for this debate. But I think Donald Trump is someone who enjoys a a kind of known quantity aspect here because people expect him to hit back at every moment. You know, Republican, the Republican base is ready to excuse every new Trump action. When you talk to voters over and over, they have a kind of built in uh, answer ready for you to say if he says something you don't like, if he does something you don't like, it's okay because I know kind of his heart. Right. That's a kind of advantage that the other candidates don't really have. And so this debate will be the chance for them to introduce and kind of create that sense of familiarity. But I think what we see on stage with kind of Trump's absence kind of speaks to the most electoral impact that could come from this. Because really, this, this, we have not seen much evidence that this is a competitive primary just yet. We, we, what would make it a competitive primary is if someone coalesces those kind of non-Trump alternatives. So I think we're really going to see a fight amongst the folks on stage to really emerge as that Donald Trump Alternative. You have Tim Scott, someone who is performing a little better in Iowa, who kind of sees his chances improving. You have someone like Ramaswamy, who's made uh, the kind of Trump lane his own. But I think Governor DeSantis is going to be in a tough spot because he's someone who has the name recognition, who has the fundraising, who has the kind of apparatus as that number two. But those other candidates are not feeling deferential, are not feeling very scared of his kind of uh, campaign performance. So he's going to have that pressure, but he also has to perform because, uh, you know, that 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 two spot is up for grabs, both with donors Mm -hmm. and with voters. I promise this is related to our conversation. Who knows what the number one song on Billboard's charts yesterday was? I is do not. Try that in a small town? No, no, no. no. Something similar. Go, go <laughs> Richmond, north of Richmond. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Oliver Anthony. And it has been become this um, anthem for yeah. uh, many parts of the country. Some political elements here as well. Um, how are we supposed to understand how this became the number one song on Billboard? It doesn't have a contract. doesn't have any big record deal. Um, in which he goes after Washington, goes after people on welfare as well, and, and a Jeffrey Epstein reference. What, how are people supposed to, uh, I guess, consume or digest this? Mm. I mean, I think about when I talked to Congressman Byron Donalds earlier this year, and he yeah. told me that one thing that is true about the Trump moment is that it flows downstream from culture. That Donald Trump is a cultural figure and this kind of movement kind of represents a grievance, a a, a kind of a a base that's really kind of agitated, not just on the political front, but seeing a kind of uh, a world that's changed away from them. I was at the Jason Aldean concert on Sunday in Iowa, partially because he also has a song that's really taken off on this front called Try That in a Small Town. We're actually talking to people about it. And so, you know, I think that that was kind of the, the thought process there is that for a lot of people, their political choices 
are not just happening from when they're watching the news, mm -hmm. but a feeling kind of in mass culture that, you know, that things are moving away from them. Of, of course. course. And so they were seeing a direct relation to 2020, why, right? Yeah, and why, the, why should anyone think it, it would change, yeah. Shelby, from yeah. 2020? Yeah, no, and I don't think it has. This has been, this is the base, essentially, that Trump and yeah. The broader MAGA movement as a whole, not just Trump at this point, but, you know, lawmakers, too, um, have targeted. And and these people kind of see themselves in the messaging that the Republican Party has adopted. Um, and so, you know, it, it is now in music. It is now in schools. It is now in all of these things that that these that this group of voters feel like mm -hmm. you said things are getting away from them. And, and it is it is resonating mm. and the Republican lawmakers are seeing that and you know, they're, they're leaning into it. Mm -hmm. And the, when folks try to take it away, so try to cancel it, try to say that this is somehow like an inappropriate message that only makes the they double make down yes. happen yep. even more. Yeah, totally. They make the top yeah. song in the country. Yeah. All right, instead, Shelby, thank you. By the way, I wouldn't have been able to name the top billboard song for sure. <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys. Nearly two weeks after California regulators gave two companies the green light for driverless taxis in San Francisco, officials are now investigating several crashes linked to those calls. Also a terrifying moment on this plane as it approaches a runway in California. The reason for the rough landing. Next. You guys aren't stupid. Don't be stupid. So when all of these little kids and the tech bros and the tech girls come up here and say, this is about safety, really? It's not ready for prime time. To give these vehicles full access to the streets 24-7 all over the city for commercial passenger service at a time when they've proven to be not up to the task would be a grave, grave mistake. So that is San Francisco residents sounding off on why they did not think driverless taxis were a good idea. Now, just days after California regulators voted to allow them, incidents involving these autonomous vehicles have spiked and some officials think more testing and regulation is needed. Veronica Miracle has been reporting this. She joins us live in San Francisco. What did you find? Well, Poppy, the future of transportation is already here. I'm going to get to this driverless shuttle in just a moment. But with any new innovation, there are always issues in the beginning. And that is what the city of San Francisco is experiencing with some autonomous vehicle companies. There's like 10 of them. Traffic chaos on the streets of San Francisco caused by cars with no one in the driver's seat. There's like one, two, three, four cruise cars blocking. No one can get through. These driverless cabs stalled for half an hour outside of the Outside Lands Music Festival. In the last two weeks, incidents involving autonomous vehicles have spiked after a regulatory agency approved GM's Cruise and Google's Waymo to expand their driverless car services in San Francisco. I mean, I couldn't have predicted it any better. I don't think any of us could. San Francisco city leaders, including Fire Chief Janine Nicholson, were outspoken about safety concerns, requesting more testing and regulations for the innovative but potentially dangerous technology. Just days after California's Public Utility Commission 
voted to allow Cruz and Waymo to roll out more cars in the city at expanded times. A cruise car and a fire truck collided. Now the state's DMV is investigating and Cruz has been ordered to reduce its fleet by half until further notice. It could cost someone their life. When an autonomous vehicle impacts one of our company's ability to respond to an emergency incident, it can impact someone's survivability. Data from the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration shows driverless cars have only resulted in minor injuries. But city officials say that paints an incomplete picture because that data only shows crashes, not delays or chaos caused by stalled cars. Doesn't know what to do. He's about to go drive into this trench right here. This cruise car drove into downed power lines. The data that we're getting is from 911 calls, which have tripled as a result of autonomous vehicles doing crazy things. Everyone's getting off the bus because there's no one driving the car. Cruises Prashanti Raman says its mission is to work with cities and make their streets safer. The status quo of transportation is really unacceptable. There's over 40,000 fatalities happening on the roads um, in the United States. We've driven over 3 million driverless miles and we have had no life-threatening injuries or fatalities. This experience may feel futuristic, but the need to buckle up is the same as always. Waymo declined an interview with CNN, but said it's proud of its safety record and its automated driver demonstrates comparable or better performance than a reference model of a human driver. AVs aren't just in San Francisco. Cruise is already operating in Austin, Texas and Los Angeles, too. Chief Nicholson has a warning for other cities. Pay attention, get on board, uh, get ahead of this, because it's coming your way. And I don't want them to have uh, happened to them what has happened here. Poppy, I do want to note that cruise passengers that we spoke to all had a positive experience. And in fact, we got to ride in both cruise and Waymo cars and our experience was seamless. Speaking of seamless, right now we are in a driverless shuttle. This is called the Loop Shuttle. It's manufactured by the company Beep. They have been operating over the last four years in about six different states, including right here in California. Now, this operates right now on Treasure Island in San Francisco. It's totally free so there's no fee there is no driver but we do have a lovely attendant on board this is christian so there's always somebody on board just in case anything were to happen this is funded by grants and it is a new way to bring transportation here to this community so the question is poppy would you take a ride yes yes because humans make mistakes too <laughs> i would try it Probably try it myself before putting my kids on yes. board, but this is fascinating, Veronica. Thank you very much. That's a great idea. Thanks. All right. All right, this morning, new video shows a really scary moment on an Alaska Airlines flight. Watch this. Yeah, that's uh, what you call a hard landing. The plane making that uh, as the left wing hit the ground, sparks started flying, was dragged down the tarmac. The National Weather Service says it was overcast and rainy at the time of Sunday's landing at John Wayne Airport in Orange County, California, just as Tropical Storm Hillary was bearing down on that part of the state. Thankfully, officials say that all 106 passengers, six crew members, they made it off the plane safely. No one was injured. Still, though, 
very scary. Yeah. Always credit to the pilots on these things. For handling it. Absolutely. Ahead, new details on the murder of a California business owner. We told you about this yesterday. A wife and a mother of nine children. The local sheriff says she was shot for displaying a rainbow pride flag outside of her store. Her daughter is speaking out. Two days from now, Donald Trump says that he will turn himself in to the Fulton County Jail in a post on social media yesterday. Donald Trump wrote, here's the quote, I'll be going to Atlanta, Georgia on Thursday to be arrested by a radical left district attorney, Fonnie Willis. And tomorrow, Trump election attorney John Eastman, he plans to surrender too. But that's only the beginning. There's 17 other co-defendants have until this Friday to turn themselves in on charges of trying to overturn the results of the 2020 election in the state of Georgia. Joining us now, former prosecutor in the Fulton County DA's office, Sarah Flack, and former district attorney in neighboring DeKalb County, Gwen Keyes Fleming. Uh, She's also considering herself to be a mentor to Fannie Willis. So it's good to have both of you this morning. I want to start with you, uh, Sarah, on something that I've been thinking, the confirmation of the two big political stories of the day. One, that Trump will be turning himself in on Thursday, in this case, and also that he's not going to be part of the debate. This is not a political question, but are there specific uh, exposures legally to Trump participating in these debates? You've got two former U.S. attorneys who don't think he should be the, the nominee, Asa Hutchinson and Chris Christie. Is he exposed in some way by talking about the case potentially during a debate that could spill over into the case? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't matter that he is the former president of the United States of America. Right now, he is no different than any other criminal defendant charged in Fulton County. And so anything that he says can and absolutely will be used against him if uh, D.A. Fonnie Willis can use it against him in his criminal prosecution. You know, Gwen, one thing that there's just no question about it. (laughs) Pretty clear cut, right? Gwen, one thing that I think is very notable, we all do, from what the judge said yesterday, is it Trump cannot make any direct or indirect threats of any nature against the community, can't intimidate witnesses, but specified for Trump as a defendant, not for the other defendants, he can't do it on social media. Would things like uh, Trump saying, you know, a few weeks ago, calling out um, Lieutenant Governor, former Lieutenant Governor of Georgia uh, from testifying, saying he shouldn't testify, would that be seen as witness intimidation? I think that would be up to a judge if we ever get to the point where the DA's office might seek to revoke the terms of bond. But I do think some of what we've seen so far may have influenced the judge's decision in ensuring that that particular condition was added to bond in this case. Hmm. And Sarah, he is obviously, and all of the um, those charged, they are innocent until proven guilty. Mm-hmm. Uh, former President Trump is a candidate. He has a right to free speech. As he goes on to continue these rallies, most of what he talks about, it's about these cases. What's the exposure there if he has um, a, a Russia, if you're listening type of moment there during one of these speeches? As a defense attorney, how would you advise him during these, these rallies? 
Well, as a defense attorney, I would tell him, I mean, one thing I know for sure, having worked with Madam DA Fonnie Willis for years and having trained, honestly, underneath her, she is thorough. I can tell you she has a team of prosecutors and investigators in that office that have been assigned to this case exclusively and that are going to be monitoring his social media, monitoring his team, monitoring mm -hmm. anything that he says at any speech, any public um, forum. So I can absolutely tell him if I was his attorney, do not speak because Madam DA Fonnie Willis will absolutely use what he says if she can um, to her benefit. She will use it against him in a criminal prosecution. There is an effort, Gwen, right now um, in Georgia because of new legislation that was passed and signed into law by the governor, Brian Kemp, to target Fonnie Willis, to try to take away her ability to prosecute this case, essentially sanctioning her. Um, the law said you can sanction prosecutors for neglecting their duty. One Republican Georgia state senator, Clint Dixon, explained this effort this way. We can have them investigate and take action against Fonnie Willis and her efforts to weaponize the justice system against political opponents. This is our best measure. I'll be ready to call for that investigation. Is this, I mean, that, that, that would be quite something to see a DA like this targeted to not be able to pursue a case. Do you see this as a real threat to her? I don't think so. Let's remember, every district attorney in the state of Georgia is elected by the citizens. Uh, that means they earn the citizens' trust to make decisions on cases. And in addition to that, they're all sworn lawyers. They have obligations and ethical rules that they have to follow. Upon taking an oath as a district attorney, you have the obligation to investigate any potential crime. And if you find evidence that a crime probably happened, you have uh, the discretion, but certainly the obligation to hold people accountable when they are alleged to have committed uh, violations of the law in Georgia. That is exactly what D.A. Willis did here. She was following not only her oath of office as a D.A., but the rules of ethics. She's acted very professionally throughout this process. Mm. Sarah, if the former president violates uh, this agreement. What's a plausible uh, consequence for that? I, I don't know that anybody expects that he will be taken into custody. Um, what do you expect could happen if he continues to tweet or says these things during his rallies? Well, uh, if he violates even 1%, that consent bond order, there will be a full-fledged bond um, hearing to try to revoke his bond on one of those conditions. And I can ensure you that will happen pretty quickly. It'll be filed. There will probably be a, a written motion that, that lays out why he is alleged to have violated the bond terms. And then there will probably be a hearing in person where he's required to attend in front of Judge McAfee. Um, and they've got to talk about why, why he has possibly violated bond. But I can assure you that will be filed pretty quickly um, and will be heard exclusively in Fulton County Superior Court. But then what, Sarah? If, if, he is, if he does this, play that out for us. What happens if someone's bond is revoked? If he's going to be treated like everyone else, well, what if happens? If his bond is revoked, there will be a full hearing in Fulton County Courthouse. He will be sitting there at the defendant's table um, with his attorneys. There will be a hearing. And if the judge finds that he has violated his bond, he will be taken into custody just like any other defendant there in the courthouse for everybody, the public, to see. He will be, uh, his hands will be placed behind his back, and he will be taken. There's a door right in that courtroom that leads to a back cell. He'll be taken back there, taken downstairs, and taken via um, county luxury transportation in a Fulton County Sheriff's Office Jail back to 901 Rice Street, where he will sit indefinitely um, in custody of Fulton County Sheriff's Office awaiting trial. 
All right. Sarah Flack, Gwen Keys Fleming. Thank you both. Thank you. So Thank also, you. It was great to have them and their expertise on this. We're also monitoring the situation in Pakistan where eight people, and that includes six children right now, are trapped on a chairlift. It is about 900 feet in the air. An urgent rescue effort is underway. Denmark and the Netherlands, they've now agreed to give Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky the fighter jets he's been asking for. So how will they impact Ukraine's fight against Russia? Next. Look at the screen. This is what's happening right now in Pakistan. Eight people, including six children, are trapped in that chairlift about 900 feet in the air. Rescuers are trying to figure out how to, of course, safely get them down. The children were traveling to school when one of the cables snapped. And look at the video. You can see a man rappelling from a helicopter to try to retrieve the students. They've been given medication to help with the, the nausea. An official also says that heart-related medications were given to the passengers. We've been told they've been slipping in and out of consciousness. You can imagine what they're feeling 900 feet in the air. Of course, we'll continue to watch this and give you updates as soon as we get them. Amazing to see. After lengthy pleas to the United States, Ukraine will now be getting the F-16 fighter jets they have sought since the start of Russia's invasion in an effort to help Kyiv's war efforts. Both Denmark and Netherlands now have the permission from the Americans to provide those U.S. F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine once pilot training is complete. Both were waiting for that permission to be able to do so. What we do know is that the Danish will supply 19 of those jets. The Netherlands have 42 F-16s in their arsenal. The Dutch government has not yet publicly confirmed how much will be given to Ukraine. Joining us now is retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Steve Anderson. General, good morning to you. Uh, Does this now, once the uh, F-16s arrive and they've been trained, does this establish the air superiority that the Ukrainians have said for more than a year that they've needed? Yes, Victor. I mean, this is going to go a long way in doing that. This is going to more than quadruple the size of their high-performance air fleet. So it's a really, really big deal operationally. Um, Of course, politically, it's a hugely important message. It shows that the Danes and the Dutch have recognized that the Ukrainians are fighting not just for their own sovereignty, but for the defense of of all of Europe. And we all need to recognize this. I think that the United States should follow this example from the Dutch and and the Danes. And we should pony up some of our F-16s as well. We have over a thousand F-16s and uh, and we should be able to provide at least 50 or 60 over there uh, to help them because they're going to absolutely need this if they're going to conduct any kind of a successful counteroffensive. They need to have air coverage. Presently, they don't have that. They're trying to root out maybe 200,000 Russians that have been dug in now for over a year, a very, very difficult thing to do. So they need air coverage. They need air superiority. These F-16s will operationally give them that once they've been trained. Once they've been trained is key. I mean, there were a number of lawmakers, Republicans and Democrats in the U.S. who had been calling on the U.S. to say, all right, you're not agreeing to give the F-16s yet, but at least start the pilot training. Mm -hmm. Lindsey Graham was one of them because it takes about four months at least, right? And now we need four more months until they can use them? I would say at least that. I mean, General Hecker, the commander of air forces in Europe, has said it's going to take four or five years to get these folks to do all the things you need to do. I mean, it's one thing to learn how to fly an aircraft. 
It's quite another to fly that aircraft in combat when people shooting missiles at you, air defense artillery systems and other fighters out there trying to shoot you down. Very, very difficult thing. I'm thinking at least eight or 10 months. Now, my, my thoughts on this are, we could use U.S. contractors that could probably accelerate the training, put simulators out there in Ukraine, you know, and put and, and station these aircraft within three or four hundred miles of the front lines. They're going to have to do that somewhere in Ukraine because maintenance is going to be a hugely important factor. They're going to be able to have uh, these are very complex machines and they're going to need to have a, a fleet of main maintainers that help them keep these things in the air. General, uh, Politico has reporting uh, this morning about the return of Trump and Ukrainians now are ramping up um, homegrown arming, uh, arms industry uh, with that return looming, suggesting that, as the former president has made oh. clear, that the U.S. is giving too much, in his opinion, to Ukraine. How much can they produce without U.S. help and how quickly can they get that up to speed? Well, I've been over there to Ukraine. It's the technological center of the former Soviet Union. So they, they have a lot of capability. I've been to actually their arms and security trade show, and they've got a lot of capability. But obviously, they're going to need to have the United States and NATO strong support. The Dutch and the Danes have demonstrated that by the, this announcement today. They're going to absolutely need to push forward all the logistics, all the repair parts, all the expertise they need to keep these things in the air. And, and I think that, uh, you know, obviously, Ukrainian is not, Ukraine is not going to be able to go it alone. They're going to need the United States and NATO to help them win this fight. We as Americans need to recognize that Ukraine is fighting for all of us, not just their own sovereignty. All right. Retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Steve Anderson. Always appreciate you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. The RNC formally announces the eight candidates who will appear at tomorrow's GOP primary debate. We are also learning that just hours after that debate, on Thursday, Donald Trump will surrender at the Fulton County Jail. Details on those plans ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Morning, everyone. So glad you're with us on CNN this morning. Top of the hour. And it is pre-debate morning. The RNC has released the official lineup for tomorrow's presidential debate. Frontrunner Donald Trump not on this list and said he's getting ready to surrender the next and felony charges in Georgia. Plus, the California clothing store owner shot and killed over a pride flag. Our friends will join us live. And a new deep dive report from The New Yorker reveals Elon Musk's influence over Washington and the federal government's inability to rein him in. We'll speak with the author of that, Ronan Farrow. He is here live in the studio this hour of CNN This Morning. Starts right now. Again, new overnight, former President Trump says he will turn himself into the Fulton County Jail this Thursday. It will be his fourth arrest this year. Trump has agreed to a $200,000 bond on 13 felony charges for trying to overturn his 2020 election loss in Georgia. His bond sets some strict conditions. The judge has warned Trump he's not allowed to threaten or intimidate any witnesses and his 18 co-defendants in the case. That includes any posts or reposts on social media. And Trump's surrender will happen the day after the GOP's first presidential primary debate, a debate that he's skipping. Overnight, the RNC released a list of the eight candidates who will be on the stage tomorrow night in Milwaukee. CNN National Security reporter Zachary Cohen joins us live outside the Fulton County Jail. Good morning, Zach. Appreciate you being with us. So the judge, ahead of Trump turning himself in and these others, 
laid out several other conditions, right, for Trump's release. Yeah, that's exactly right, Poppy. Trump is expected to turn himself in to the Fulton County Jail, which is right behind me on Thursday. But his lawyers were meeting with the district attorney's office yesterday to sort of lay out the terms of this bond agreement. And in addition to the $200,000 bond that you mentioned, there's also a broad social media provision in there that you know says he can't threaten or post anything threatening on social media to anybody in the community writ large. That would you know, include the prosecutors, that would include other witnesses. Um, so these are really strict terms of a bond agreement. And we also know that four other of Trump's co-defendants also had their lawyers meeting with the district attorney's office yesterday to work out their bond agreements. You know, the, the total in money ranges from $100,000 down to $10,000. But we know three lawyers did negotiate their bond agreements yesterday. That's John Eastman, Ken Cheeseborough, and Ray Smith. And then there was actually another bail bondsman who negotiated his bond agreement mm -hmm. yesterday as well. Um, that is a man named Scott Hall, who was involved in the Coffee County breach. So, you know, we are starting to see these co-defendants, there's 19 of them, including Trump, work out the terms of their bond. And we should see them start surrendering here to Fulton County Jail in the next few days. Okay, so that's the Georgia case. Let's turn now to the federal election subversion case. And Jack Smith, the special counsel, pushing back hard against this date request of uh, 2026, April 2026, uh, to start that uh, case. What's he saying? Yeah, Jack Smith said at the outset when he announced his indictment that he wanted a speedy trial. Trump came back with a very different uh, proposal. He wants a trial to happen in 2026 after the next presidential election. So Jack Smith yesterday went a new filing pushing back on the claims by Trump's lawyers arguing that this should be pushed back um, until 2026, saying that misstated facts. Um, they basically crafted a narrative that was not based in reality. So there's still some contention there. The two sides arguing over when a potential trial for Donald Trump in that federal case could happen. Zachary Cohen, thank you. It's going to be busy there this week, that's for sure. This morning, Fox says that it will no longer provide credentials to former President Trump's surrogates for the spin room at tomorrow's GOP presidential primary debate. Several of Trump's advisors and top surrogates were planning to attend the debate and represent him in the spin room since he won't be there. Well, now they're working to sort out a resolution with the network as well as the RNC. CNN's Elena Treen is live in Bridgewater, New Jersey with more. So you've got some reporting for us this morning about how the Trump team uh, has reacted to this. What do you know? Right. Well, good morning. And yes, the Donald Trump team was very uh, angered by this yesterday. They were informed just two days before the debate that they were no longer going to be credentialed by Fox News in the spin room. Of course, Fox is hosting that debate in Milwaukee on Wednesday. But I am told that they think they have found essentially a loophole around this and also, um, you know, some sort of resolution, which is other networks will be able to give some members of the Trump team as well as some surrogates who don't have credentials already uh, access to that spoon room. So this is how they're coming around it. But from my conversations with Donald Trump's team, I know that they were very frustrated by this. They kind of saw this as a slap in the face from Fox News. But of course, the reason that Fox News had pulled these credentials is because Donald Trump is not participating in that debate. Now, um, just also to talk about some counter-programming that the former president himself is doing, he will be sitting down with Tucker Carlson Wednesday night for an interview that he's already recorded. We have reporting that he has pre-recorded that interview. He will be uh, in Bedminster near where I am just now, uh, Wednesday night during the debate, but he will also be having uh, an aired interview with Tucker Carlson. And so um, a lot of, uh, you know, 
uncertainty, I think, around what was going to happen with Donald Trump's surrogates in that spin room. They do think they will be able to be there now and represent him in his absence. Victor Poppy. Elena Treen for us there. Thanks so much. So with the frontrunner, Donald Trump not going to be on the debate stage, it's quite an opportunity for his Republican rivals who trail him to try to break through. What do they need to do tomorrow night? Joining us, former advisor to George W. Bush and John McCain, an executive producer of The Circus, which is phenomenal, always with the best hat in television as well. Mark McKinnon, welcome to the program. Sometimes the only hat in television. <laughs> this is true, and the best one. Let's just, I want to tick through all of them because your notes are so interesting. Why not start with the former VP, Mike Pence? What does he need to do? Well, first of all, this is the first best and maybe last impression for all these candidates to really make an impression and try and break through. And, and, and really, the effect that this debate may have is not just for somebody to break through, but it may be for somebody to, to break down, and, and this could be their last debate. So Mike Pence... His opportunity here is is to say uh, that when asked to choose between Trump and the Constitution, he chose the Constitution. This is his mantra. This is the hill that he's chosen to live or die on. But it's a very distinguishing fact. It's his, the one act he'll be re remembered for historically, so you can be sure that this is the play he'll make. Governor Ron DeSantis, what does he need to do? DeSantis really needs to push the notion of Trump being a loser and that he's a winner. He's got a proven track record. Psychologically, the way to go after Trump is to say, is, is to say, listen, this guy, you know, we, he, he won an election. He was a good president, of course, did a lot of good things, but he can't win. He lost the last election, first time in 100 years that a president lost his reelection, the Senate and the House since Grover Cleveland. I can win. Nikki Haley's team uh, reporting is that she's been preparing for this for a very long time since, since she launched her run in February. What does she need to do? Keep your eye on Nikki Haley. I think she's a real value play. She, she knows this drill. She's experienced not only in campaigns, but in government. And that's her message. She can say that I am the most experienced person on the stage because I have both executive experience as governor and foreign policy experience as the former United Nations ambassador. So she has a broad portfolio. The political newbie, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, his team says that they're not doing mock debates. Apparently someone took a shirt and he's playing tennis anyway. What does he need to accomplish uh, at the debate tomorrow night? Well, after I haven't seen that video, maybe he'll bring his tennis racket to the stage. Uh, he plays a pretty good game of tennis, clearly. Yeah. That's, that's part of That's his secret sauce, man. He is all about confidence, and that's, that's his superpower. So... I think that he's the, he's the guy to watch in this debate. He could really break out because it's all about expectations. Not many people know him. Not many people have seen him. And, and whether or not you agree with his positions, which are pretty wacky, he's a very impressive guy. So watch for him to break out and make a real impression. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum wants to introduce himself to the American people, but they don't get opening statements. So he's going to have to figure out a way to do that in answers, I guess. He does. He's probably the least known of anybody, despite the fact that he's a governor. But he, his play is to introduce himself as an effective governor, but also a successful entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And then to say, you know, if, if anybody gets pulled by a pollster, I'll give them a gift card to say that I won the debate. That's how he got on the debate stage. That is with how. With a $20 gift card. How he keeps going. All right. Senator Tim Scott, who is uh, getting a lot of attention in Iowa, taking a different approach than many of his uh, uh, opponents here. What's his... Uh, his high mark here. What's his goal? Yeah, he's got a lot of potential in Iowa, and he's another one to really watch. He's got a lot of uh, potential with Iowa voters. He's, you know, he's got a very sort of religious background and plays with evangelicals. 
his play is to be the sunny Reagan conservative. He's a, he's the nice guy of the group. Everybody likes Tim Scott. The one thing I think that he needs to do is start throwing a little bit of an elbow. And the way that he does that, I think, is to very subtly or maybe not so subtly say character counts. Mm -hmm. This is sort of what the George Bush message was in 2000 to say it's time to return honor and integrity to the White House. Tim Scott's the guy to do that. Former Governor Asa Hutchinson, one of the few who will be on that stage who has called out Trump, said he, you know, he basically, he and Christie, and said he's not qualified to be president. Um, what does he need to do? Because he's really lagging in the polls. He is, uh, but but that's his his way in is, is to, like Christie, confront Trump. He's doing it as uh, as a former governor of Arkansas, a southern governor, and uh, and somebody who's saying that, listen, the, it is disqualifying if you are under cr criminal indictment to run for president. He should not even be running. So that's where he's drawing a very bright line that he doesn't qualify because of the indictments. He should not even be running. And uh, number eight, uh, the former governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, who has been brawling since he entered this race. What sh should he be doing tomorrow night? Well, he's the human wrecking ball, and he's got one play, but it's a really good one, and that is he just punches everybody. He'll punch up on Trump. He'll punch sideways on DeSantis and punch down on Vivek. You can just count on Chris Christie to just punch everybody in the ring, and it's always good TV, and it always makes sense. So count on Chris Christie to keep punching. We'll see if he can get his poll numbers up with yeah. those punches. All right. Mark McKinnon walking us through all eight. Thanks so much. Take it, thanks. So we now know when former President Trump will turn himself in to the Fulton County Jail. That will be on Thursday. What is that going to look like next? A shop owner in California killed for displaying a rainbow pride flag. You'll hear from her daughter and one of her friends next. In just two days now, former President Donald Trump is set to surrender at the Fulton County Jail. Uh, the former president will not be alone, of course. His 18 co-defendants have until Friday at noon to do the same. Now, this comes as a source tells CNN that threats have been made against employees with the Fulton County Sheriff's Office. With us now is CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller. John, so uh, not just the booking process, uh, there is the security of all of this. Are there the resources to handle this, especially since it looks like they're all waiting until the back end of the week? There are. Fulton County planned for this, and for a long time they have flown around, literally sent people forward to the other places where Trump has been indicted, New York, Miami, Washington, D.C., to see how that process has gone there and to adjust. Uh, the sheriff's office will have the lead on this today, but Atlanta PD is involved in the moves from the airport to the jail. Mutual aid agreements have been made with other towns and agencies. So some of this is baked in. Is there a chance we might not see or hear from Trump on Thursday? Because there's two entrances to this place. So there is a chance and probably uh, better than a chance. Uh, this has been designed as a... You know, wham, bam, in and out. Uh, it's arrive at the airport, motorcade to the jail, go in the garage entrance, um, enter the jail, get processed, come out, leave the same way you came, motorcade to the airport, uh, no statements to the press, uh, nothing like that, especially given the judge's uh, recent order. Uh, so this should be about as fast-tracked as it can be. There will be the booking process, certifying the bond, um, Yes, mugshot. Yes, fingerprints. No handcuffs. Um, it's all kind of lined up. Mm. So this is happening at Rice Street at the jail there. 
Did it have to happen at the jail? Could it have happened at the courthouse? So interesting question, Victor, because it should happen at the jail, but it could have happened at the courthouse. Think about this. In the other arrests, in the New York arrest, they didn't book him at the first precinct and there wasn't a perp walk. Uh, right. They did it quietly in the DA's office. In Miami, they did it in the U.S. Marshal's office, a United States Marshal app appointed by Donald Trump. Um, so they have adjusted the process, theoretically for operational reasons and security. Um, in this case, they've deliberately not adjusted the process, presumably, presumably as a demonstration of the district attorney's and the sheriff's words that he'll treat, be treated like any other person who has allegedly violated the law. Also interesting, this is the first of the four arrests now where he has to actually pay the bond. Yeah, and, you know, that's also baked in ahead of time in that, you know, they've agreed on the bond. So, you know, for a normal prisoner, that would be something that would hold up the process while they were at the jail and they would have to, you know, scramble to arrange that bond. There are many bond. people who sit in jail for years because they can't pay it. Well, I think uh, in this case, we're not going to see that. Yeah, exactly. So let me ask you about the, the exposure. I talked about this with some attorneys earlier. Um, the debates and the exposure potentially. If, if Trump gets up there with two former U.S. attorneys who don't want him to be the nominee, Asa Hutchinson and Chris Christie, and they can goad some things out of him, what's the, the legal exposure for having Trump uh, participate in any of the debates that are on the schedule? Well, it's a high risk. It's a high risk venture because of Donald Trump, which is um, Donald Trump has few unspoken thoughts. So the idea that he is now operating under a judge's stern warning um, that is attached, um, as one of our earlier guests pointed out, you know, a violation of that could actually affect his bond, uh, whether it goes up or is revoked uh, or remanded. Um, a lot of things are on the table here that haven't been before. So he's going to have to figure out with his lawyers and agree where that line is, mm -hmm. um, which has traditionally been hard for him. And Chris Christie, and I assume Asa Hutchinson as well, they know what to get out of him to potentially speak to state of mind at the time of the questions that are in these cases. Not just lawyers, but former prosecutors. Indeed, indeed. John Miller, thank you. Great Thanks. to have you. So this just in, we want to show you newly released security video. This is posted by that local Kansas newspaper that we told you so much about last week, the Marion County Record. And what you're looking at is police raiding the home of that paper's 98-year-old co-owner and the mother of the editor of the paper, Joanne Meyer. You'll remember she collapsed and died the day after the raid. Police said that Meyer's home and office, over, they raided it over claims that the newspaper had obtained information illegally, the paper has consistently denied that. Watch this. Don't you touch any of that stuff. Ma'am. This is my house. You're a Police chief. You're the chief. Oh, God. Yeah. How many computers do you have in the house, ma'am? I'm not going to tell you. Get out of my way. It's all right. I want to see what they're doing. So according to the paper, Meyer had been, quote, stressed beyond her limits and overwhelmed by the hours of shock and grief after the illegal police raids. Here is what her son, Eric, who is also the publisher of the paper, told CNN last week. One nice thing about it is that the outpouring of public support and the support from news organizations and, and journalistic organizations afterward would almost vindicate her. I think, I think she would feel good about that. 
Wow. This search warrant, we should note, that was used to raid the home and the paper's office, well, it has since been withdrawn, and the items seized have been returned. The Kansas Bureau of Investigations is looking at the entire incident. That video is stunning, especially in the context of what happened afterward, that they returned it all and that she died. And the that the day. warrant got pulled back because he yeah. didn't have a probable cause affidavit in the first place. Yeah. I mean, all of this is just striking. A shop owner in California killed for displaying a rainbow pride flag. You'll hear from her daughter and one of her friends next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. New this morning, the San Bernardino County Sheriff has named the suspect who allegedly shot and killed a California businesswoman. This was after an argument over the gay pride flag hanging outside her clothing store. And according to the sheriff, the 27-year-old suspect ripped down the flag, shouted homophobic slurs. He was later killed during a confrontation with deputies. And this comes as the small community in the San Bernardino Mountains mourns Lori Carlton. Francie. Carlton, also I should know, a mother of nine, helped really foster a culture in which the LGBTQ plus community felt accepted. Her daughter told our colleague Anderson Cooper last night that she had faced local hostility before, but she always stood up for equality. She was so fearless and any negative reaction, um, you know, she just powered through. Um, the flags had been torn down before by different individuals and she always went and ordered an even larger flag in response and put it up. So, um, you know, I, I admire her and I'm so proud of her. And I know that she passed standing up for something that she believed in. Wow. Well, Carlton was one of the largest donors to Lake Arrowhead LGBTQ+. That group noting that Lori did not identify as LGBTQ+, but spent her time helping and advocating for everyone in the community. And this attack comes amid a spike in anti-LGBTQ incidents. The ADL reports more than 350 of those attacks in just the last year. We are joined now by a friend of Lori's who is also the co-founder of Lake Arrowhead LGBTQ+. That is Matthew Clevenger. Matthew, good morning and thank you for joining us. I know that you have said that, you know, there are people who moved to the community who were concerned about their safety. And then they'd drive by Lori's store and they'd see the flag and they would feel welcomed. What did she mean to everyone there? Uh, Lori was, was the gap, you know, between the LGBT community and everyone else up here. It was, she was the, she was security for a lot of people because of these flags. She was, she was the brave one. She was the lioness. And, she was the most fierce person that we knew. And, and I mean fierce like a lioness fierce. Um, she was fierce in business. She was fierce in love. She was fierce with the way she felt about um, her stances on, on uh, people's rights. Um, the human rights campaign was important to her. Um, the voting rights were important to her. And this was all centered by her passion for rights for LGBTQ. Matthew, um, I wonder what you thought and felt when you heard what happened at that store, at that flag, and now there's someone in custody, that because she stood up, because she kept replacing the flag, uh, she lost her life. You know, uh, we've always, uh, we're in a changing uh, climate here as far as the demographic of this location. It has been traditionally quite conservative. Um, but nobody's ever had a problem with getting along, especially when we moved here. But this 
was a shock that Lori, uh, you know, a person that did not identify as part of the community, that was just an ally, was shot because of a rainbow flag. And I think that's what's going to resonate with people. Um, it is not a shock that this occurred in this area. That Nobody is shocked that gun violence occurred because of somebody having a gay flag up. It's just that we didn't expect it to happen to someone that was an ally like Lori, a, a woman but, married to a man with a blended family of nine children. But saying that is shocking in itself, right? That no one is shocked that someone was shot because of this. And it comes in that context, yes. Matthew, that I mentioned earlier of the ADL mentioning 350 attacks driven by this hate in the last year. Yeah, exactly. And, and I have to say, when we started our, our uh, the organization is a social organization uh, just before COVID and went into the first parade uh, during COVID, there was very little backlash from the community and it seems to have grown over the past year and a half. Mm. Um, we still haven't had any issues with that up here outside of some side remarks and hand gestures but 99% uh, of the folks up here are wonderful. And uh, no matter what their political affiliation or how they worship, most pe people up here just get along well. But there are these folks that are, are not so uh, uh, keen to the changes that are happening up here and have been, changing for year have been happening for years. Mm. I read that uh, businesses already are putting up rainbow flags uh, around the community yeah. and that you said that something good has to come out of this uh, hopefully uh, there is more of that, not just the flags, but also uh, the support for the entire community there at Lake Arrowhead. Matthew Clevenger, thank you so much for your time. And again, we're sorry for your community's loss. Yeah, and the support is going to come from what Lori wanted, which we are going to continue to support the community yeah. through Lori's uh, efforts that are going to be based on what Lori wanted us to do. Thank you. Her, her work won't, is not done. Thank you. Thank you. There's a new report that finds that Elon Musk's influence over the U.S. government is so widespread that the government has become, quote, reliant on Musk. Ronan Farrow wrote that piece for The New Yorker, and he joins us next. Well, if you haven't read this, you need to. A new deep dive in The New Yorker painting a stunning portrait of Elon Musk, stunning in multiple ways. The focus on the billionaire's growing influence in both the war on Ukraine and the U.S. government at large. According to the new report, while on a call with Pentagon officials about his company's satellite-based Internet that Ukrainian troops have been really relying on on the battlefield, he mentioned that he had a conversation. He spoke to Russian President Vladimir Putin Musk has previously denied speaking to Putin, but the former undersecretary for defense for a policy told the magazine that Musk said that he had spoken to the Russian president. At the same time, U.S. defense officials were worried he might suddenly decide to pull Starlink Internet out of Ukraine. The undersecretary also told the reporter, the journalist who wrote all of this, Ronan Farrow, that Musk appeared anxious that Russia might see his company's involvement as enabling the war to prolong on Ukraine. Pharaoh reports that Musk's influence within the U.S. government is widespread and that over the last two decades, quote, Musk has sought out business opportunities in crucial areas where, after decades of privatization, the state has receded. The government is now reliant on him, but struggles to respond to his risk-taking, brinkmanship, and caprice. The New Yorker contributing writer Ronan Pharaoh joins us now. On his latest article, Elon Musk's shadow rule, how the U.S. government came to rely on the tech billionaire 
and is now struggling to rein him in. This is a fascinating piece, and I was talking to you during the break about there is a line here where you are, you know, trying to get some questions from the Pentagon about uh, Elon Musk. And the spokesman says that, and this is a quote here, uh, we'll talk to you if Elon wants us to. I mean, there seems to be a degree of deference here from the Pentagon. I mean, that's a small manifestation of the balance of power we're talking about between this private individual who has become so wealthy and so powerful in different fields and the government, the actual state. And we were talking about this in the break a little bit. That is a complicated dynamic. That is something that has some pros, right? Mm -hmm. This is a person who has advanced various fields in meaningful ways. Uh, There is a reason the U.S. government is so reliant on him in all of these ways. But at the same time, he is someone who has behaved erratically. And the fact that we're getting that kind of uh, communication from the government as journalists, like, will go through this private individual, yeah. that's, that's pretty unusual. And it is a, a small but significant sign of just how beholden they are. And one thing I thought was so interesting is how you highlight in the piece, you write national security officials I spoke with, meaning you, had a wide range of views on the government's balance of power with Musk. A supporter of his is General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who spoke to you sort of glowingly about him. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the the framework for several of those conversations with people who were so supportive of him was that all the conversations in advance and with their teams were about, okay, but we want to make sure we're, we're making clear to Elon that we're supportive of him. So, so you really get a little glimpse into just the texture of the relationships. There is nothing wrong with those kinds of warm relationships, obviously, between a private individual and significant government leadership, uh, even in the context of a, a military contractor relationship. But this is something more and different. And, you know, I talked to a lot of historians to get a sense of how new this is, the fact that we can only put crew into space, that NASA has to go through Elon Musk and no one else. The only alternative we have right now at this moment, probably for the next year, is sending people up via Russian launches. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that if we want to advance green energy policies around electric vehicles, we got to go through Elon and his charging stations because he's got right. 60% of the stations in the country. Right. Historians told me that is a new extreme and a newly political dimension to this kind of private yeah. power. Specifically on the uh, Russia's war in Ukraine, I think the most obvious example for most people at home is when he decided to uh, end the Internet service through Starlink that he exclusively offers to uh, the Ukrainian uh, military. And that's how they communicate, obviously. Uh, He then reversed that, bemoaned the cost. But is the, the Pentagon, is the government attempting to unravel this at all now that everyone knows the dependence? Well, two things happened. One is at the end of this story that is one of the many stories told in in this profile uh, of a standoff over Internet access in Ukraine, where it appears he was talking to Vladimir Putin. He was telling multiple people that at the time, though, as you point out, he has since tried to deny that. Um, And then he was curtailing access specifically in areas that Russia was contesting. Um, At the end of that, one of the things that happened was the Pentagon did pay up. They just said, you know, we're going to get a deal in place to make sure this doesn't shut off entirely. But, you know, the other thing that happened is uh, people on the ground in Ukraine, people on the front lines remained spooked, right? Right. We bought his services apparently at a very, you know, generous rate. Um, This is a situation where metaphorically he had the U.S. government and the Ukrainians at gunpoint. And to this day, they do fear that he is going to curtail service more. 
It's very hard to get people to talk in that context, and I'm glad that some did. Once you get into the sort of middle of the piece, you back into his life and you go to his childhood, his first marriage, his losing his first child, all of these things that created the Musk that we know. Can you speak about the Musk that we know now via X, formerly Twitter, and you talk at the end about him taking on AI and the, the way that we've seen him operate and conduct himself both with Twitter and now with AI, because you quote Sam Altman, a huge figure in AI, saying, Elon desperately wants the world to be saved, but only if he can be the one to save it. This was a common sentiment amongst Elon Musk's peers, that he does this very significant uh, work that at, at times, uh, in my mind, there's no doubt, it's a net positive for all of us, right? Even in some of these spaces where there have been problems, uh, the Ukrainians needed that access to satellite internet. It created a bulwark against Russia's cyber attacks. Uh, in the case of you know, launches through NASA, uh, we are now no longer reliant on the Russians to do that. Uh, NASA officials told me we're moving faster mm-hmm. in some of these cases. But the Twitter thing's different. But the, but the Twitter thing is different, right. And we, we're seeing in these recent years that Elon Musk has behaved erratically at times, that the biographical facts that you mentioned uh, that have led to him at times talking about his loneliness, his sadness, um, the fact that there have been questions about his psychopharmacology and public reports about, uh, you know, the Tesla board being concerned about his ambient use. Uh, ketamine. You the ketamine about. use that I, that I write about. Uh, the, these are all things that can be used in a legal and healthy way. However, there is concern, you know, that this is a human being that we're giving all of this power to. And there are very few checks on that power right now. I should say that uh, in the story, you say that you reached out to Elon Musk. He did not respond. Has there been any response since it's been published? Well, he, he actually declined to answer questions for the piece, uh, which is a subtle but significant difference from, from not sure, responding. Sure. And you know, it's, it's his prerogative to do that. The interesting thing about Elon Musk is he's been the subject of so many books, so many biographies, so many profiles. And he's a rare case where, like, the mystery is not him. He uh, is engaged in a stream of consciousness, you know, uh, a monologue about himself through a a huge swath of public life. He is tweeting, now Xing, I guess we would say, because he renamed that company, all the time. So we know a lot about him. And I felt like what we weren't hearing was, what is it like for the other people on the other side of the table from him in all these sectors? I just think this is such a brilliant framing because we don't often talk about what he means for us, what he means for society in the world in America. And the, the, what did you write? You said the private power is the word you used. is just really important. So Yeah, I, I appreciate you all having a thoughtful conversation about that. It's a, it's a little heady to get into, you know, historical economic uh, policy on a, on a morning show like this. But it is important. And it does resonate with all of us, everyone we know, right? How much power we're putting in the hands of private people, individuals no who checks. can be uh, dangerous or erratic, right, under some circumstances for all the good they do. That's something we want to think and talk about. And, and there, there's a quote from a former NASA administrator in this piece, Jim Bridenstine, mm-hmm. a Trump appointee, uh, you know, a conservative in the new vein politician, uh, very uh, about protecting economic progress and not exalting government power. However, he says such a powerful thing. We have to understand that too much deregulation can also present dangers. And that if we're putting our eggs in one basket, the Elon basket, that could present some danger. So the fact that even conservatives are saying that in this piece is meaningful. 
It is a fascinating piece. Um, Ronan Farrow, thank you for coming in to talk with us about it. Yeah, thank Congrats. you guys. Great thank to be you. here. And we also reached out to Tesla, SpaceX, and Musk himself for comment and did not receive a response. So we do have new reporting this morning on the Biden administration's student loan repayment program. Those details ahead. And as families burn through the money they saved during the pandemic, the cost of child care continues to soar. But just how bad is it? Harry Enton is here with this morning's number. Childcare is expensive. I don't have to tell you that. But now we've got the data to prove it. New data from the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco shows families across the country are not only facing dwindling pandemic era savings, childcare costs are soaring. Childcare Aware of America, that organization found the average cost for childcare is $11,000 a year. Our senior data reporter Harry Anton here with this morning's number. Ooh, that is a lot of money for a lot of families. And what I want to point out here is that the 2023 childcare cost versus a year ago is up 6%, while inflation overall is just up 3.2%. So childcare is costing significantly more, even when you take into account the normal inflation. I think the question is, why is that? Well, one reason why is remote only working is down. So that is driving up childcare demand. Look at the people who are only working at home that is now 15%. You go back a year ago, it's 20%. You go back two years ago, 29%. So we have seen the number of people who are solely working at home drop by about half from where we were just two years ago. But it's not just about demand. It's about more, right? It's about more. You know, it's about demand. It's about supply. So take a look here. 2020 Thanks for economics 101, Harry. I know, right? I did actually take <laughs> economics in college. Look at the 2023 workers versus February of 2020. There are fewer workers in childcare, down 4% versus all jobs, which is actually up 3%. So childcare, people are not wanting to go into childcare. Why? Well, I'll give you one reason why. Take a look at the average hourly wages for childcare. It's just $20, just $20 versus all jobs, oh, $34. So a lot of workers are saying, hey, why should I go into childcare? There are a lot better jobs out there, especially in this job market, which has been so good over the last year. And it's year. one of the hardest jobs out it's there. It's absolutely one of the hardest jobs. And Not most th- important job, Harry. Yes. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Not a job I want to get into anytime soon. <laughs> Thank you for Thank that. You. We appreciate it. Victor. New this morning, the Biden administration has officially launched SAVE, the income-driven student loan repayment plan. SAVE stands for Saving on Valuable Education, and it could reduce overall loan costs. It pegs the borrower's monthly payments to what they make, regardless of what is owed. In a pre-recorded message, President Biden had this to say about it. It's the most affordable student loan plan ever. As long as you pay what you owe under this plan, you'll no longer see your loan balance grow because of unpaid interest. CNN's Jeremy Diamond joins us live from the White House. So uh, how does this work? Well, Victor, this program is officially launching today. People can go and apply now, and it changes a previous income-driven repayment plan in several significant ways. Rather than 10% of your discretionary income as your minimum monthly payment, that is now down to 5%. Also, no additional interest accruing as long as you make those monthly payments. Uh, And in addition to that, more discretionary income is protected under this plan, up to 32 thousand dollars a year, which means that individuals earning less 
than $32,800 a year, they will owe $0 per month. And the White House says that that equates to millions of people who will see their payments reduced to zero. Now, the typical borrower, according to the White House, they will save about $1,000 a year. This, Victor, is one of a number of alternatives that the White House and the president have pursued since the Supreme Court struck down his effort to forgive about $400 billion of student loans. Uh, that happened back in June. The White House is still pursuing alternative plans to broadly forgive student loan payments, but in the meantime, they're working on plans like this one right here. Now, student loan repayments uh, that were paused during the pandemic, those are set to begin again in October, and White House officials are urging borrowers to go right now and then start applying for this in time for those repayments in October. People looking to apply can go to studentaid.gov save. Victor. Jeremy Diamond, Force of the White House. Thank you, Jeremy. Well, two years after her Olympic dream was derailed, Shikari Richardson is now world champ. What she said after the big win. Her historic run is next. Love this story. American Shikari Richardson already in Olympic form two years after a positive marijuana test derailed her Olympic dreams. Women's 100 World Final. The Jamaicans get out well. It's Sharika Jackson, Shelly Ann Fraser-Price, Talu. Here comes Shikari Richardson. Shikari's Richardson winning the gold medal in the 100 meters, finishing in just 10.65 seconds. That is the world championship record, by the way, after the race she talked about how the last two years got her to this moment. I feel amazing. I feel like hard work pays off. I've been dedicating myself. I've been keeping my faith strong this season and just believing and knowing Whatever you practice is what you put forward, and I'm grateful. When I celebrated, it was because I felt like I did my best. No matter what the result was going to be, I felt like I did my best. By the way, don't call it a comeback. Richardson was clear when she said, I'm not back, I'm better. She is considered a favorite to win at the Paris Olympics, which start less than a year from now. So good to see her back. Absolutely. All right. Everybody remembers this. <laughs> Uh, the hours of my life I spent playing right? this game. Of course, this is the iconic Super Mario. Uh, but back when the game was released, Mario didn't have a voice. It wasn't until the 90s when Charles Martinet created the voice of the Italian plumber. And he's been the voice ever since until now. Because after nearly 30 uh. years, he's retiring. But Mario wasn't the only character he voiced. He isn't stepping away entirely, though. Martinette will become a Mario ambassador for Nintendo. Love it so much. Duck Hunt. Did you play Duck Hunt? Oh, I played Duck Hunt, yes. I and I really couldn't get right with Turtles for a very long time <laughs> because of this game. We're good now. The kids are like, what? Watch Oh, uh, if you didn't play Duck game Hunt, Boy? but that dog comes out and grabs it and runs off at the end, you're missing it. <laughs> we'll see you tomorrow. See you in a new Central starts now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.